one way you can say it is that what's big in our eyes or what's close in our perspective compels us. And too often, our perspective on God and on our problems is just like these photos. What's actually big, God looks or feels small. And what's actually small, our problems, the people in our life, are blown out of proportion. How do our problems compare to God's greatness? You know, sometimes our problems seem overwhelming, don't they? They seem insurmountable and way beyond what we can bear. However, when we compare them to the greatness and power of our Heavenly Father, they're actually quite small. Hi, I'm David Dennis with the Kansas Communities Ministry with the Navigators. Thank you so much for joining us today. This past April 1st and 2nd, the Kansas Navigators hosted 71 men for our retreat at Heston's Crosswind Conference Center. Our speaker was Mr. John Anderson, Campus Ministry Director for the Navigators at Wichita State University. John graduated from the University of Northern Iowa, and he says that he was an atheist when he met the Navigators as a freshman there. Over the course of a year, he became a believer in Jesus Christ through many conversations with new friends. He was discipled by another Navigator student, and this helped him grow in his relationship with God. He learned how to share his faith with others. Since then, he says that he has dedicated himself to recruiting, inspiring, and training college students to share Christ and make disciples who, in turn, make other disciples right where they are and to the ends of the earth. We were reminded at the conference that disciple makers are compelled by God's greatness, as John shared with us from Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 4. Quote, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Gentlemen, how are you guys doing? Good. My, like David, David, thanks so much for the introduction. I love hearing that video. I've seen that many times. I, I never, it never gets old to me to learn about Dawson Trotman and what he started. Um, like David said, my name is John Anderson. I'm on staff with the Navigators at Wichita State University. This is I'm finishing up my tenth year on staff with the NAS. Uh, and like he also said, I came to Christ through the Navigators when I was in college. Anyone else here come to Christ through the Navigators? Out of curiosity, my men, my people. <laughs> Love you guys. That's awesome. I'm going to tell you more about my story later. Uh, But just so you know, I normally speak to college students. And all of you in this room, except for Xander, are older than my normal audience. Uh, (laughs) So just bear with me if I say something that doesn't quite make sense to you. Uh, My references are are, are to my time. And so I tend to think like a millennial. Um, So bear with me if I say something that doesn't make sense or isn't quite relevant uh, to where you are in life. Also, a quick apology. I'm not logged in to my, uh, my, app, my slides app right now, so it's just going to occasionally say pro presenter. That's distracting, but it's not an intentional part of the slides, so sorry about that. But David mentioned my family. I want to show them to you. Uh, here we are last summer. I've got, this is my wife, Courtney. Uh, she was involved in Navigators when she was in college in Nebraska. 
And then our oldest son, Leo, is five years old. He started kindergarten this year, and he's loving it. He's learned so much. Uh, we love talking about Jesus together. Uh, and then Gideon is three, and uh, our baby right there is Levi. He's going to turn one this month. So we've got hands full with three boys, but we love it. Uh, that's a little bit about me. I- I'm curious about you guys. I, I want to know, who, do you- who here thinks they came the farthest to get here tonight? No one's raising their hand, so if you don't think it's you, maybe rethink that. Okay, Kansas City. City. Anyone come from farther away than Kansas City? Well done, Road Warrior. Thank you for making the trip and coming all the way here from Kansas City. I'm curious, who here thinks they've maybe been to the most Navigator conferences or retreats out of the group? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm several Joe's down, and Jeremy D and I are, uh, are up there. If you had a ballpark, how many do you think you've been to? Navigator retreats, conferences. Including here in Glen Erie, uh, I don't know, probably 60, 70. All right, you got me beat. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I love, I love just learning a little bit more about who, who's here, because the reality is that we're all coming from very different places geographically. And we're all coming from very different places spiritually. Some of you men have been going to Navigator conferences since long before I was born. Uh, and for many of you men, this is the first Navigator conference you've ever been to. Uh, wherever you guys are at or wherever you're coming from, I want you to know that this weekend, this conference is for you. You're not here by mistake. Some of you guys have the whole TMS, Topical Memory System, memorized. You have it on these wonderful uh, cigarette po- pocket-sized cards that you can keep. You have it all memorized. You know, you read the entire Bible every year. And maybe some of you men don't really crack open your Bible uh, and and aren't very familiar with it. Wherever you're coming from, I want you to know that this conference is for you. Some of you guys pray without ceasing. You're doing it all day, every day. The Lord is on your mind and on your heart, and you're pouring out prayers to him. And maybe there's some men in this room that aren't quite sure that God's there and that he listens. I want you to know that wherever you're at, wherever you're coming from, this conference is for you. Some of you men have been making disciples for years. And you've already seen the third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation of disciples come from your life. And some of you haven't discipled anyone. And you're maybe kind of afraid to get started. Wherever you're at, this conference is for you. I don't think any of you here are here by accident. You're here because the God of the universe has brought you here. And I believe that he has things for you to hear this weekend. Mike Trenier isn't speaking here, and that's not by accident either. God wrote that in his book before the world ever started. God has things he wants us to to hear this weekend. And I want you to know that I have friends all over the world who are praying for you right now. uh, And praying for us right now. uh, As we gather together and look at God's word, that we would engage with the God of the universe and we would listen to him. So thank you for being here. You're not here by mistake. Now, I'm a millennial, which means that one of my pastimes is looking at funny pictures on the internet. And I love sharing them with my friends. So before we get any further, I want to share some with you. I love these kind of forced perspective photos where obviously something is closer to the camera to make it look big and other things are farther away to make it look small. And it just kind of plays with reality. So here we have uh, uh, someone crushing uh, a bunch of other people. There's a whole kind of sub-genre of these photos of people like eating giant things, which I really enjoy. I think this is a very spicy hot dog that's about to be devoured. There's also... 
I don't really know if he's eating the rainbow or if he's throwing up the rainbow. But either way, I'm a little concerned. Pro presenter. There's also another subgenre of these I love, which are like monument photos, where people take pictures with famous monuments. And the, the most famous one or most common one is people with the Leaning Tower of Pisa holding it up. We see tons of these. Here's uh, my favorite. I'm so grateful for all of the American tourists who take time out of their work and their normal lives and travel to the other side of the world to protect the people of Pisa and hold, take turns holding up this giant tower that is slowly leaning over. Um, but of course, the thing about these photos is, is they only work from a particular perspective. And we, when you look from any other perspective, you, you look kind of silly. It, it just looks funny. This is the reality. Everything else is, is fabrication. So I'm not just doing this because I actually love laughing, because I do, uh, but I, I, I share these pictures because I think they illustrate an important spiritual principle. And that's that I believe that we are compelled by whatever dominates our perspective. We're compelled by the things that we think about all the time. By the first thing you think about when you get up in the morning. The last thing you think about when you go to bed at night. The things that actually motivate you to do the things that you do. These things loom large in our hearts. I was just talking to Dr. Spann earlier before this conference, and we were talking about how important it is to focus on what you remember from your past, what you think about, what you meditate on, what you dwell on. One way you can say it is that what's big in our eyes or what's close in our perspective compels us. And too often, our perspective on God and on our problems is just like these photos. What's actually big, God looks or feels small. And what's actually small, our problems, the people in our life, are blown out of proportion. And that leads to worry and fear and anxiety. Our lives become consumed by our worries, whether we'll get that job or that promotion. Consumed by the state of our relationships and our marriages. Consumed by our children and their activities. Consumed by all of our worries. And and so these things become big. And God seems small in comparison. So my focus for this weekend is making disciples. I want to talk about making disciples. And I believe that the number one obstacle to disciple making is not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of training. It's not a lack of resources or a lack of experience. It is an opposition from government or culture or universities. It isn't any of these things. I believe that the number one obstacle to us making disciples is having a small view of God. The number one obstacle to us making disciples is that our view of God is too small. Most people I talk to don't share the gospel because if we're honest, we're afraid. We're afraid of what people will think. We're afraid of losing a a friendship or losing a job or facing opposition or ridicule or rejection. Oftentimes the people in our lives loom large and God seems so small. The Bible has a name for this. It calls it the fear of man. And it says it's, it's a snare. It's a trap, a deadly trap. And so the solution is that we all need a perspective correction. We need to step back and see God for who he really is. And then we can see ourselves and our problems as they really are. 
And the thing is, God has told us about himself right here in the Bible. This is the only place we can go to get an accurate perspective on God. So we need to look to it often. We need to look to it. We need to read it. We need to study it, memorize it, meditate on it, and believe it and obey it. We need to be compelled not by our circumstances or by our, by our relationships. We need to be compelled by God. And so that's what I'm praying for this weekend, for tonight and for tomorrow. I'm praying that we would come face to face with the living God in the scriptures and that we would walk out of here different than when we showed up. That we would leave tomorrow with greater joy and greater peace and greater courage and greater purpose because we're compelled by our amazing God. So tonight, I want us to see that disciple makers are compelled by God's greatness. Tomorrow morning, we're going to talk about how disciple makers are compelled to be ambassadors. And then we'll talk about disciple makers are compelled to make disciples. And finally, before we go home, we'll see that disciple makers are compelled to multiply. Does that sound good to you guys? Yep. All right. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for bringing all of us here from all around Kansas and Oklahoma. Uh, Lord, thank you that you are the God of the universe and nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is outside your control. Nothing surprises you. Nothing worries you. Lord, would you open our eyes to see you as you are tonight? Would you soften our hearts to hear and believe and respond to your word? Would you speak to me, speak through me tonight, Lord, and be glorified in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Let me, uh, I had slides for all these, but uh, I'm not used to running my slides. Oh, anyway, we're around there. Um, so when I started going to, ch- to church with my friends in college who started sharing Christ with me, the very first sermon I heard was on Isaiah chapter six. And it blew my mind. So that's where I want to look at tonight. So get out your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 6, or as Mike Trenier would say, Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, chapter 6. That's going to be my only attempt at a British accent tonight. This passage has become very dear to me over the years. And as we look at it, we're going to see four perspective-shifting realities. Four perspective-shifting realities. We're going to get a right perspective on God. And when we do, we'll come to a right perspective on ourselves. And then we'll have a right perspective on God's grace. And finally, a right perspective on God's mission. This is, again, Isaiah chapter 6. It's in the Old Testament, about halfway through your Bible, if you're looking for it. Page 908, that's right, in the the proper translation. I got it on 777. We're very different here. All right, let me go ahead and read Isaiah Isaiah, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Then the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. 
your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Amen. Amen. So looking at the the setting for this, we see in verse one that this takes place in the year that King Uzziah died. And this is pretty significant. The death of a king was a big problem in the ancient Near East. And Israel, the kingdom of Israel, was no exception. You see, most of the kings in Israel were actually pretty bad. Very few of them were good. And Uzziah was one of the better ones. And not only that, he ruled for 52 years. Can you imagine having one ruler, one pretty good mostly ruler, on the throne for 52 years? And the kind of stability that that leadership would bring? I looked it up. We've had 10 presidents in the last 52 years. In the times that we've changed 10 times of mostly presidents trying to undo the previous president's work, they had one man ruling for 52 years. And now he's dead. And that's a problem because when a king died, you did, their son would usually come on the throne. And you didn't know if that son was going to be a good king or not. There's often a lot of upheaval. Sometimes there were literal attempts to to murder people and take the throne. It was often like Game of Thrones going on in Israel. But don't miss this in in verse 1. In the year that the king died, Isaiah got to see who's really on the throne. He got to see the Lord, high and lifted up, sitting on the throne. He got to see the one who's really in charge, always in charge, no matter who's sitting on thrones or fancy chairs, or oval offices on earth. And this king is something else. He is something special. And we see here that God, the real king, is huge. Talk about a literal perspective shift. See, commonly the people of Israel would say that God dwelt in the temple. This was his house. This was where he lived. And there was a special place where he said, this is where I'll make my name dwell. But oftentimes they'd think that this was where God lived, and specifically that he'd sit on this mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. But here we see God can't fit in the temple. In fact, the train of his robe can't fit in the temple. We're talking a building bigger than this room right now. And imagine Isaiah has this vision of it's just full of a billowing garment. And he looks up, up, up and sees the, the Lord on the throne. And this, this train is really significant. In the ancient Near East, the length of a, the train of a robe, the kind of part that, that followed behind on the floor, was often an indicator of power and status. Like you can think of this, uh, if you've been to a wedding, uh, the most honorable person at a wedding, the most honored person is always the bride. And she has a dress that always has a pretty long train. Like I've been, I got married, and I remember my wife's bridesmaids would often like have to like adjust her train. Wherever she like moved, they'd come over and they'd fix it. A longer train means you needed more attendance always at your service just for your robe. And here, God's train is big enough to fill a whole building. He's the most honored, larger-than-life king you can imagine. He doesn't fit in a temple and is never confined to it. Now, the king would usually have attendants who served them and gathered around the king and carried out their orders. And here, the seraphim are presented as God's attendants. And it's very interesting how they're described. See, they have wings like you do expect angels to have so they can fly, but they had extra pairs of wings. Isaiah says they had three pairs of wings, one pair to fly with, 
Then they had a pair that they had to use to cover their face constantly because they were always in the presence of the holy God of the universe. And they needed to shield their eyes from him the way that we need to shield our eyes from the sun. It was an occupational hazard of being a seraphim. They also had a pair of wings to cover their feet. This is because feet were considered unclean. So they had to hide their uncleanness to be in the presence of the holy Lord of the universe. And these seraphim are constantly calling to each other with earth-shaking voices, shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That holy, holy, holy is really significant. You know, in, in, in ancient Hebrew manuscripts, they didn't use all caps when they wanted to make a point. They didn't bold it or underline it. If they wanted to emphasize something, these were things were written to be read out loud. So they'd use repetition. We see this all the time in the New Testament. Jesus will often say, truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus isn't saying, hey, normally I'm kind of lying a little bit, but this one's true. No, he's drawing attention to a point that's hard to believe. Truly, truly, I say to you, don't miss this. And here, threefold repetition in Hebrew, that's the highest repetition we see. You can't emphasize something more than holy, holy, holy. This is the only attribute of God that's emphasized this way in the Bible. The Bible says God is love, but it doesn't say God is love, 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 or God is just, just, just. It says God is holy, holy, holy. So if we want to truly understand God as he is, we need to have a right understanding of what it means for God to be holy. Now, normally the word holy means to be set apart, specifically set apart for service to God. One way you can think about it is this is my water bottle. It is holy to me. It is set apart for me. And if you were to come up to me, and drink from my water bottle, you have profaned my holy water bottle, and I will drink it no more. I do not want your COVID germs or whatever in my mouth. You have profaned my holy water bottle. It is set apart for service to me. So for a person to be holy, it means I'm set apart for God. I won't worship any other gods. I won't live for anything else. I'll live for God. But what does it mean for God to be holy? He can't be set apart for himself. When the word holy is used of God, it means that there is nothing like God. There is no one like God. There is no God like God. He is utterly unique, utterly unlike, and beyond anything else. One one pastor and author, John Piper, says it this way. He says that the word holy is the little boat in in which we reach the world's end in the ocean of language. The possibilities of language to carry the meaning of God eventually run out and spill over the edge of the world into a vast unknown. Holiness carries us to the brink, and from there on, the experience of God is beyond words. The reason I say this is that every effort to define the holiness of God ultimately winds up by saying, God is holy means God is God. That's what we get to. God is holy means God is God. And since words fail to capture the holiness of God, the best we can do is compare him to the things that loom large in our world and our lives and see how far they fall short. How big is God in your perspective? You know, if our view of God and his holiness, goodness, and power is small, 
then every problem in perspective seems bigger. Every problem seems insurmountable. If, on the other hand, our view of God is big, that He truly is all good, all knowing, and all powerful, then our problems melt away. How is your view of God? How is my view of God? Join us next time for more inspiration from John Anderson on Making Disciples Naturally. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the navigators, nor of the Kansas Communities Ministry. Thank you for listening.